Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. This is the second of our two interviews with civil rights lawyer Barbara Phillips. She's a contributor to the book Voices of Civil Rights Lawyers, Reflections from the Deep South, 1964 to 1980. We interviewed Kent Spriggs, the editor of that book, in December 2017. In part one of our interviews with Barbara Phillips, she shared stories and experiences from her 40-year legal career as a community organizer and a civil rights lawyer. In this conversation, we focus on Framing the Contemporary Dialogue of Race, which is the title of one of the pieces Phillips published in Voices of Civil Rights Lawyers. We discuss the changing rhetoric about race, the Second Reconstruction, and Supreme Court decisions addressing race prior to the 1980s. These decisions defined a broad scope for just and equal rights for black people in the United States. When Barbara Phillips and I visited by phone from her home in Oxford, Mississippi on March 6, 2018, we began our conversation when I asked her about framing the dialogue about race. Contemporary dialogue about race, to me, has been consumed in this phrase, diversity. Whereas the dialogue about race that brought about the Second Reconstruction, which is what some of us refer to as the period after the Supreme Court decision in Brown versus Board of Education, that dialogue was used the terms racism, white supremacy, um, relied upon an understanding of the Constitution as being appropriately race-conscious in order to uh, remedy uh, the effects of slavery, um, segregation, um, and to give real meaning to the Civil War amendments that were intended to grant full citizenship uh, to the former slaves. How does that morph into creating a contemporary dialogue from your perspective? Over the past years that the Supreme Court has been dominated by um, conservative, so-called conservative judges, the court has turned away from what I understand to be a principled um, interpretation of the Constitution. Um, The Fifth Circuit court judges were quite remarkable uh, during the days of the Second Reconstruction in understanding what our Constitution should mean and how it should be interpreted. And um, as a young lawyer, I was particularly particularly struck by a decision written by Judge John Minor Wisdom, where he said the Constitution is race-conscious. Under the 13th Amendment, 
the Constitution contemplates and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment does not prohibit race-conscious, class-based, prospective relief in a unit of state government in the appropriate case. And the appropriate case is one in which discrimination in a state governmental unit is system-wide, institutional, and the product of a long history of discrimination against blacks as a group to continue what amounts to a caste system. That conversation was replaced by the Republican Supreme Court with this term diversity, which elevated the interest of academic institutions in having diverse student populations for the benefit of white students so that they could better learn how to navigate uh, a multiracial world. And that, to me, I, I found that absolutely astounding as it was happening in the courts. But I think more detrimental to society is that the conversation about race changed in the public square as well. No longer were we talking about racial justice. No longer were we talking about remedying the present effects of past discrimination. No longer were we talking about dealing with the legacies of slavery in this country. We had elevated the interest of academic institutions in their First Amendment efforts to have a, 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 a rich um, academic environment. And there, there was no talk. It eliminates uh, any conversation about racism, institutional racism, remedying uh, white supremacy and the damage that it does. Diversity for the benefit of the white students, yes. as opposed to the benefits of the students of other skin color who had been previously excluded. Yes, and not just, I wouldn't even use the term benefit, justice. It is about the right of the black student, the right of the Native American student to have access to the fullness of what it means to be a citizen in this country and to not uh, be subjected to discrimination on the basis of race. So that was reflected subsequently in a phrase called reverse discrimination. Exactly. As a part of this uh, this distortion of the Constitution, the Supreme Court began using this term, and of course, white plaintiffs who objected to remedies of race discrimination began using this term. I think Warren Hatch even used it, or, or um, Bob Dole used this term reverse discrimination. And what they were referring to was this sense of entitlement that among white folks that remedying the injustice and exclusion of black folks from being considered objectively and on the same basis as everyone else, that somehow this was taking something away from the white worker. And there was an infamous uh, 
campaign, I think in in uh, Georgia or North Carolina, where one of the ads showed um, this black hand, you know, kind of taking the job from a white hand. It was just uh, outrageous. But this was this this ideology was supported by the Supreme Court in its decisions and in its own use of the language. Um, someone once said, you know, acknowledging uh, the rights of everyone does not take away the right of anyone else, that it's not pie. You know, if I get a slice of pie, it doesn't mean you can't have a big piece of pie, too, you know. It's, it's more like uh, the opportunity to breathe the oxygen in the air. Yes, exactly. So from your perspective now, looking back on the court, the Supreme Court structure at the time of the Board of Education case, uh, separate is not equal, and then how that the Supreme Court structure changed to discuss the racial integration and equal access and equal reception to public institutions by all people, regardless of their color. What do you feel uh, was going on in our society that narrowed this perception uh, of equal access and equal rights from where it was in 30 years earlier? Well, I think um, what was going on in our society was the um, Southern strategy of the Republican Party that was announced by Ronald Reagan uh, notoriously at the Neshoba County Fair in Mississippi, which is the county in which the three civil rights workers were murdered and their bodies found, you know, buried in a a mound of dirt on a riverbank. Um, And uh, this southern strategy of the Republican Party was intended to attract white Democrats to the Republican Party, and they did it by using race. And they used, you know, dog whistles that worked in the South as well as in the North. And uh, the Republican Party, beginning with uh, Ronald Reagan, began this very definite turn toward racial politics. For the benefit of whom? For the benefit of Republicans and more significantly to the benefit of wealthy Republicans. And there's a really terrific book about what happened to the Republican Party in this phase written by Thomas Frank. And it's called What's the Matter with Kansas? And what he does in that book is go deep into a county in Kansas that he happens to be from, and he describes what happens in the transformation of the Republican Party from the Republican Party that he knew as a boy growing up to this transformation into uh, what we now see as a white nationalist party. And now, when you say what we now see is in the uh, second year of the Trump administration. 
Exactly. And, you know, as President Obama noted, sometime during the campaign, during the Trump campaign, he, he noted, speaking to the audience about Republicans, you know, why are they surprised by the emergence of Donald Trump when, for years, uh, the Republican Party has prepared the ground for the emergence of just this kind of candidate? In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with attorney Barbara Phillips from her home in Oxford, Mississippi. She's one of the speakers in a book called Voices of Civil Rights Lawyers, Reflections from the Deep South, 1964 to 1980. She's a retired professor of law at the University of Mississippi and a retired uh, attorney, a member of the California Bar. You are listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Barbara Phillips, reflecting on what you just shared with us about the Ronald Reagan redirection, are there elements of an additional or a new turn towards more equality and freedom among people regardless of skin color in the United States? Barry, I'm I'm actually hopeful, and and I can identify two key um, matters that, that, that give me uh, hope and a belief that, that uh, we're going in the right direction. The, the, the first thing that uh, strikes me is that Black Lives Matter has really changed the conversation. Here in Mississippi, there are a group of predominantly white women, over 200 in number, who are engaged in a variety of ways on a number of issues that are important locally, statewide, and on the national level. Uh, We call ourselves the Wise Women of Oxford. And among this group of women, I see for the first time white women initiating conversations with other white women about white supremacy, about racism, about institutional racism, and what needs to be done about it. So I'm, I'm, I'm very encouraged by the emergence of Black Lives Matter and what it is doing to the conversation around race. And I just saw that the Parkland students who were at the school in Florida where the horrible shooting took place about a week ago, that those students are now meeting with Uh, black kids in Chicago who are involved in the Black Lives Matter movement. And I believe that these young people are gathering as a storm that will take us in the right direction. I'm also very optimistic um, and encouraged by the work of Eva Patterson and the Equal Justice Society that's based there in the Bay Area. It is an organization that has a national impact, and the vision that it brings is that we really have failed to deal with the unconscious bias 
that affects every aspect of our lives here in these United States. And so the work that it is doing, I think, is having an, an incredible impact, both um, in, in, in the world of social justice, and they're also having, a, I believe, they're beginning to have real impact in the courts. So those, those things make me hopeful. Let's stay with the unconscious bias for a moment. I think that that uh, is something that is unknown to people because it is unconscious to them and not yes. part of their yes. thinking, that their, their worldview. Can you discuss the unconscious bias a little more, please? Sure. One, one of my first encounters with it was when I was appointed by the Federal District Court in San Francisco to monitor the compliance of the San Francisco Fire Department with a broad-based consent decree that brought in the first women into that department and addressed issues of race discrimination in hiring and conditions of employment and promotion. And the psychologist that we worked with on that case introduced me to to this little uh, um, test that had been developed, I think at Harvard, to get at this issue of unconscious bias. And, uh, and now I believe that test is available at the website of the Equal Justice Society. But in any event, the test is you, you sit in front of the computer and you are shown a photograph of a candidate and, and that candidate's resume. And you're asked to rate the candidate you know, on a scale of 1 to 10 uh, on various factors relevant to the employment. And and in 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 doing this research, it it became apparent that the photograph, whether that photograph was of a white candidate or a black candidate, affected the evaluation of the of the candidate um, by whoever was doing it, whether it was black folks or white folks. And so there 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 are these mechanisms that that can get at. Um, the underlying unconscious bias that is prevalent uh, based on it. This test particularly dealt with race. Um, I'm, I'm sure over the years, you know, uh, more sophisticated and complex uh, research is being done, but that is the particular bailiwick of uh, the Equal Justice Society. The, the question that I have, Barbara Phillips, with regard to unconscious bias is more directed on how to bring awareness of this unconscious bias to people who would not be inclined uh, to go to the Justice Society website or anywhere else where this kind of self-evaluative test is available. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, I, I, I think that's... That the the idea of it in order to to get into the consciousness of the general population um is is a is a communication strategy that i know the equal justice society and others are are engaged in but certainly i i think that in order for it to enter the mainstream of conversation you know we need a, a more intense communication strategy to help people uh, become familiar 
with the, with the idea because people love to say, "Oh, I'm colorblind," and you know, it, you know, it's wonderful to be colorblind. I don't see color, um, and in fact, people people do. Not only do people see color personally in their personal interactions, but I think it's very important to remember that we have institutions that are embodied ideas about race and that those institutions need to be transformed so that they don't perpetuate the caste system in which they were created. So then I I see that, and I'm interested in your response to the Trump era being the reaction to the Obama era. Yes. In shedding light on those institutions and the unconscious bias that was which to some extent was manifested by Trump's election. Yes, and one simple way to to illuminate this is is to just look at the criticisms that were made of uh, President Obama that are now suddenly okay with President Trump. I mean, for example, you know, something like, uh, uh, you know, the Republicans severely criticized President Obama anytime he took a vacation or played golf. Um, now we have 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 you know this number forty five who spends three million dollars every weekend going to one of his private properties to play golf and rake in more money for his businesses. And you know the Republicans don't seem to have a problem with that. So, you know, the the the, the institutions of um, the Republican Party or Congress, you know, clearly aren't evaluating objectively the work of these two men. Well, Barbara Phillips, I want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious in a two-part series on race in the United States and particularly framing the contemporary dialogue of race. And before we close, I'd like to ask some questions about you. The first one is about a eureka or an aha moment that changed your life. And I know you told us about your political science professor at McAllister College directing you to go to law school, but perhaps there's another? Yes. I... um. Actually, it was uh, um, my a big eureka moment was when I became a mother. I became a mother when I was forty years old, which um, was considered quite uh, quite late. And uh, I I didn't know anything about babies, and um, I spent the whole nine months reading and building up this huge library of books on child development and everything else. And uh, my eureka moment was when my son was born and I realized that I had a profoundly different connection with the rest of the world because I now had a baby in it. And, uh, you know, I had always thought of myself as someone who lived in community and valued community, but I was also the kind of woman who would walk across the street if a you know a bunch of little 
kindergartners were walking down the street because I just didn't want to be bothered with them. And uh, my son changed my life in very profound ways that I still, uh, that continues to change my life. And I'm very grateful for it. What would you like to do with the rest of your One Precious Life? I am now in the mode of um, being very excited about the leadership of young people. Uh, and and I'm, I'm one of those who says these are not the leaders of tomorrow. These are the leaders of today. And I see my role as, as being um, their cheerleader. Uh, and and offering to them whatever support that I can. I recently joined the board of an organization here in Mississippi called Mississippi Votes, and its mission is to um, register the 350,000 unregistered eligible voters in this state, and it is a youth-led, youth-conceived, a brilliant young woman named L. Bean came back to Mississippi after working in the uh, Clinton campaign. Uh, She's from Itawamba County, from a poor white family. And she had this vision of an organization that could change this state, that could create spaces in which young people in this state could reimagine their possibilities and the possibilities for this state. So I'm very excited about supporting young people like that and doing anything I can to to help them. And um, I encourage my peers to follow them along with me. And finally, Barbara Phillips, in addition to the book that you mentioned earlier, What's the Matter with Kansas by Thomas Frank, is there another book that you could recommend to our listeners? Yes. I am a big fan of a book entitled Transforming Feminist Practice, Nonviolence, Social Justice, and the Possibilities of a Spiritualized Feminism. And it is written by Leela Fernandez, F-E-R-N-A-N-D-E-S. It is a little book. It is a book of about 140 pages, and it is just one of the most important books I've ever read. Uh, A uh, human rights activist recommended it to me uh, years ago, and I find it to be something that I I, I buy copies of it regularly and and distribute it to young activists that I meet. I think it is one of the most important books um, that we have to prepare ourselves to actually transform society. And it is Transforming Feminist Practice by Leela Fernandez. Attorney Barbara Phillips, thank you so much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you, Barry. It's been great. Barbara Phillips is one of the several contributors to the book Voices of Civil Rights Lawyers, Reflections from the Deep South, 1964 to 1980. As a retired civil rights attorney and retired professor of law at the University of Mississippi Law School and formerly a program officer for the Ford Foundation in the Human Rights Unit 
of the Peace and Social Justice Program, Barbara Phillips continues her life's work as a community organizer in Oxford, Mississippi, and continues to promote community justice programs around the world. The books Barbara Phillips recommends are What's the Matter with Kansas? How Conservatives Won the Heart of America by Thomas Frank, and Transforming Feminist Practice, Nonviolence, Social Justice, and the Possibilities of a Spiritualized Feminism by Lila Fernandez. This program was recorded on March 6, 2018. There are over 630 archive editions on our website, www.radiocurious.org. The email address is curious at radiocurious.org. The phone is 707-462-6541. Christina Onestead is our assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.